I mean, people think this is crazy, but but think about it. Um, Halloween has just passed. People like to be scared. Yeah. People want to experience fear. Sometimes people like to feel angry. And so sadness, sulking, is uh, you know an underappreciated pleasure. Does listening to this podcast ever feel like suffering? Making it certainly does, and having to listen to my voice drone on and on is no picnic either. I know about that firsthand because I sit here editing my own words for hours and hours. And yet, 81 episodes later, I'm still here. And apparently, so are you. It's a tenuous relationship, but we're still going strong. Which begs the question, why is it that we enjoy suffering so much? Canadian-American professor of psychology and cognitive science Paul Bloom believes he has the answer, or at least some of the answers, to what is a profound and complex question. In his book The Sweet Spot, The Pleasures of Suffering and the Search for Meaning, he explores exactly that, that Goldilocks point just between too much suffering, such as with last week's guest Guantanamo's most tortured prisoner, Mohamedou Ould Salahi, and a life without enough self-imposed suffering. That's because his book posits, and I'm probably only vaguely getting this right, so do read his book to get it firsthand, that suffering is useful on an evolutionary level for many reasons. For example, you might feel compelled to go over and over an embarrassing thing that happened to you or a mistake you made. You might even feel some vague pleasure from fixating on it. And this makes sense because fixating on past mistakes might prevent future ones. But what about intensely hot baths and spicy food and other pains we put ourselves through? Professor Bloom explains all this in today's episode in which we also discuss psychopaths, sad music, horror films and much, much more. His research otherwise looks at empathy, religion, morality, language and art. He taught for many years at Yale and now shares a campus with the likes of Jordan Peterson at the University of Toronto. He has that special ability I always look for in guests of an academic persuasion, which is that he's utterly approachable and accessible. He can explain complex things in ways that I can understand, which is always the litmus test. I had a lot of fun talking to him and hope I get to have him on again. He is a big deal in the world of academia and you can find him on at Paul Bloom at Yale on Twitter. There's a link in the show notes as well as one to his book, The Sweet Spot, which I loved and I think you'll love too. Today's bonus episode is one of the best we've had. Paul really put a lot of thought into it and we talk for half an hour about everything from his favourite punctuation mark and public shaming to children's laughter and stand-up comedy. You can listen to that free through Apple by doing the trial or sign up to patreon.com slash andrewgold to hear that. And you can just cancel if you don't want to continue, so then it's only a few quid. But do give it a listen because it was brilliant. Paul's answers were really well thought out. He stayed up with his partner the night before to really give them some thought. I have upped the number of automated ads in the non-Patreon version of this podcast. I hope it isn't considered greedy or anything like that. It's just that I currently get about £300 or probably, what is that, $400, I don't know, a month from ads, which isn't really enough to live on quite yet. I do think it'll get there and I'll be able to lower the ads sometime in the future. If it really does feel excessive, get in touch and let me know and I'll have to reconsider it. Don't want to be losing listeners. That's the last thing I want. Of course, Patreon and Apple members get ad-free episodes. Next week, I think I've got ex-cult member Kelly Thiel, or it might be Hassan Al-Kontar, who had to live beneath an escalator in an airport for seven months, like in that Tom Hanks movie. But now, it's Professor Paul Bloom. Remind me, is this a, a video thing or just audio? So I do put it on YouTube. It doesn't get that many views generally. About 99% um, listen. I'm, I don't know, but I, I keep making that joke about having a face for face for radio, but people are laughing less and less. No, you you got a few years before they get it as a joke as opposed to... Um, good, good. So I only have to look 1% good. What do you think of my lights? I've got these lights behind me and I don't know if it makes it look like a brothel or like a cool YouTuber thing. Um, combination. It looks like um, an upscale massage parlor, maybe <laughs> not not quite yeah. brothel level. It does sound like a brothel, actually. <laughs> it does sound like a brothel. But yeah, there's nice. no brotheling happening here. Just so people, that's, just so people that's, know, that's important. That's important. Yeah. Are you able to um, record on your side? Yes, 
I did a podcast with some friends of mine and I had this microphone. I was very pleased about this microphone. And I told him he did the whole thing with the microphone and it sounds great and everything. And at the end of it, I'm bragging. I said, she pulled up my microphone and I realized it, had, it wasn't plugged in. <laughs> oh. uh, it's not plugged in now, is it? No, it is. It is. It okay. is. I'm, it is. Yes. Yes. Okay. You see, and you probably had the microphone sound and do that. Okay. okay yes yes that's right oh it looks it looks love it looks like a lovely good microphone good oh i'm 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 really happy with this all you okay know, I, I just yeah a lot of the people you speak to you know you can't some people are not very technically advanced and then you you, you can't you just have to go okay we'll take whatever whatever you got you know yes i'm i'm not technically advanced but i got a bit i must start recording i got the i got you know i learned how to plug in my microphone yeah well you know you've plugged it in fantastically where are you based at the moment i'm in toronto Toronto I have to yes. go there someday is it nice it's a beautiful city it's a beautiful mm. city it's um we are you know friends of mine a couple of hours away got snow so it's all, the weather's terrible wow but um but it's a beautiful city god I've never even been to Canada you know Canada's nice it's like a politer United States yeah I find Americans very polite you know I, there's a stereotype that they're not polite you got everyone smiling at you. you as soon as you get to the airport everyone's hi how can I help you you know there's this nice thing going on it's true. I mean, first thing, America's a big country. So, yeah. so you know, it, it's it's different from place. But yeah, you're right. The reputation, in fact, maybe the other stereotype of Americans is overly friendly. Mm. You know, the Germans yeah. say, we, you know, Americans laugh too much and are just always grinning. I lived in Germany for two and a half years in, in Berlin. And yeah, I can see why they think Americans laugh too much because <laughs> I don't think I saw someone laugh. The only time someone laughed was when I made that joke when we just got on. I did say to someone, I've got a face for radio and a German guy just loved that joke. He'd never heard oh. anything like it for like really? laughing for an hour. Yeah. You know, it's not a new joke just, just, to, be, <laughs> just to be brutally honest here. <laughs> For them, it was this guy because he was at first he didn't laugh, and after we were having dinner, and then it took a while, and then eventually he said, "Well, wait a minute, a face for radio—that's not a good thing." <laughs> and he was laughing for ages. This guy, so very German. <laughs> I'm not offending Seriously. any Germans listening. That's a good story. That's a good story. We're not—we're not doing the podcast now, are we? <laughs> Uh, maybe, yeah. Is yeah, it all right maybe. if I include from from now? I haven't said that I'm recording, but I am. Is that all right if it's if this is in what we've said so? Um, no, I don't know. Like, uh, what did we say? We said that my place looks like a brothel, and um, there's a. I made a joke about Germans, and I think that's it. Okay, I found your joke about Germans extremely offensive. By the way, picking out <laughs> ethnicities as a target of humor is forbidden. Now we can go. Yeah. We're good. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, so tell me, I've, I've been reading reading your book. Tell me a bit about your book, just for listeners and everything, please. It's called A Sweet Spot. Uh, and the pleasures of suffering and uh, the search for meaning. And I got interested in the book because I was interested in certain puzzles of why we seemingly choose pain. Um, hot baths and saunas. We go to we go to movies that make us cry. We go to movies that gross us out. We um, we run marathons. We do all we. Some of us engage in BDSM. We do all of these things that that in order to get pleasure that involve pain. And I was very interested in that. And then, in the, and I was going to call the book "The Pleasures of Suffering" and just focus on that. And in the course of thinking about this, I, I arrived at a place where a lot of other people arrived at, where um, I began to think about the role of suffering not for pleasure but for meaning and purpose. And I end up um, focusing most of the book on that. I end up defending what you could call motivational pluralism, which is that humans have uh, many appetites. Certainly, we want pleasure, but we also want meaning. We want to be good. We might want truth. We might want beauty. And suffering could play a role in all of that. I'm finding it really, really fascinating. And I find it quite pertinent to to how I live. And I guess a lot of people must live. But then there's also this real push at the moment for no suffering. Um, a lot of people suggest mindfulness, for example. And yeah. I, I found with mindfulness that I prefer actually stressing about stuff. I don't want them the stress and the thoughts to go away. I think the idea is that you sort of push that stuff to the side and I thought, no, I actually function when, when I'm sort of upset and, and, and ruminating and, and things. Do, do you know what I mean? I do. I do. Um, I think sometimes we want some degree of noise in our head. We want some degree of unpleasantness. Uh, suffering, pain, difficulty are excellent cures for boredom. We sometimes habituate on, uh, on pleasure. You know, it feels good. That's great. But, but uh, sometimes we want to push ourselves. And then, so how do you do, as a, as a university professor, 
Uh, and, and I'm not going to ask many political questions. This is vaguely political. Um, okay. But there's a there's sort of a push for things like safe spaces on universities at universities. So uh, how how do you where do you stand on those kinds of things? I'm not um, I'm not one of these people in my book. Um, I'm friends with uh, Greg Lukianoff and John Haidt, who wrote The Coddling of the American Mind, where they very much push for the value of difficulty and suffering. And they say safe spaces are a bad idea because you shouldn't be safe. Um, if you're safe, it could be bad for you. And you want to have some degree of, of stress, some degree of pressure. Um, I'm kind of agnostic. I, I think there's a perfectly plausible argument for safe spaces of a sort. When I run a seminar, you know, I say, look, you know, people are going to be civil to each other. They're not going to personally attack each other. You should be able to express your views, however confident, however, sorry, however controversial, um, without fear of being mocked or belittled. So I, in some certain ways, although I like a plurality of ideas, in some, my, my space is, it's safe. And so, so I know this isn't what people mean when they talk about a safe space. I guess a large, my book is mostly about chosen suffering and, um, and how chosen suffering could have all sorts of benefits. Unchosen suffering, suffering that just comes upon you is more complicated. And I think sometimes could have corrosive effects. So my opinion about a safe space or say an unsafe space is I'm certainly in favor if people choose it willingly. And I'm enough of a libertarian that I have room in my head for safe spaces and trigger warnings and that sort of thing. Because to me, that comes with in some way being an autonomous person. I like to have all the information in front of me. I like to be able to choose to be in a place where this happens, but this doesn't happen. And that's an important differentiation, chosen Absolutely. versus not chosen. In your book, you talk about the difference between being uh, molested or raped and stuff like BDSM, which is chosen. What, why do people go for BDSM? BDSM is a particularly interesting case, and I don't think there's going to be a single answer. Um, when, you, when you ask people, when you look at studies, it's all over the place. Um, one thing we know is it doesn't seem to be a sign of pathology or something gone, gone awry. If it was, you would expect people who like BDSM to have um, other problems, and they don't seem to. It doesn't need to be comorbid with depression or anxiety or anything else. And also, some appetite for BDSM, at least at a distance, seems to be uh, really popular. I, I, you know, I point out in my book that the book Fifty Shades of Grey, which is you know a fantasy about BDSM, was the most popular book of the last decade. And the second most popular book was the sequel. And the third most popular book was the end of the trilogy. Not to mention the books, that, sorry, the movies. And I'm sure there's going to be a Netflix show one day. Um, and so it's a popular desire. I think one of its appeals, and here I'm drawing from the psychologist Roy Baumeister, is that it could provide an escape from self. That, that to some degree, being dominated under chosen circumstances, having pain inflicted upon you, like being whipped or slapped, um, can in some way take you out of yourself. And in that way, it's similar to, um, to rigorous exercise or, um, or in the hands of an expert meditator, mindfulness meditation. And so this escape from self is an important appeal to pain. And you don't have to go to full BDSM to see it. I mean, a sudden jolt of pain takes your mind away from your, your current circumstances. Stances. When I the first time I ever uh, sparred with somebody in Brazilian jiu-jitsu a long time ago, and it was of course somebody younger and stronger than me, because most people were younger, younger and stronger than me. Um, it was like two minutes or something. I don't know what it was, and then I was done, and I realized for those minutes I thought of nothing else. I wasn't thinking of my next book. I wasn't thinking of the embarrassing thing I said last week. I wasn't thinking about how I looked. I thought of nothing else than than the sparring, and that's what sort of certain difficult experiences do for you i found the exercise stuff personally very difficult like that pain the pain of jogging for 10 minutes yeah. i find yeah. really painful uh, and boring and uh, yes. some people just they just have it don't they so i wonder why and i don't know if, if there's an answer to this but why we all have such different uh pursuits of pain and suffering because i like as you mentioned in the book i really like a hot bath i i make it like it's like bubbling you know i get i like basically cook myself in there like I, and, and i why <laughs> why do we have different ones and, and yeah i guess that's what i'm asking yeah i can give a really confident answer to that question nobody knows 
<laughs> nobody, nobody knows why some people like hot baths and some people hate them. Some people like spicy foods and others know. Some people like horror movies and the scarier the better. Others find idea just not only don't like it, they're just um, astonished that someone could have such a taste. There are people who do BDSM, people who don't. And to my knowledge, I mean, people talk about sensation seeking, but in some way that's a cheat because sensation seeking is just questions like what kind of extreme experiences do you like? So, of course, the items on a sensation seeking scale will correlate with your preferences just because that's what they ask about. But if you look at neuroticism and IQ and openness, the experience and extroversion and everything, there, there's no there's no predictive power here. It's a mystery. The horror movie aspect is really interesting. I I had a psychopath on the show called M.E. Thomas, and she's just sort of a psychopath who talks about She wrote Confessions of a Sociopath. Um, and I said to her, because she said she loves movies, and some of her favorite movies are horror movies. And I said, but why is that? Because I assumed we watched horror movies, and I think I assumed wrongly, because we empathize with the characters. And I was saying, if you don't empathize... And she said, no, that's not what's happening at all. It's that you were scared watching it. There are all sorts of things that happen where you don't empathize, just something jumps out. That's nothing yeah. to do with empathy. You're scared. And so I guess even a psychopath can enjoy that thrill of suffering, right? Yes. You know, there was an old, very bad theory of why some people liked horror movies, which is they didn't find them scary. And first, if you think about it, that's really weird. Like nobody advertises for a horror movie. You'll love this one. It's not scary at all. I mean, people want to be scared. Uh, there's these old um, advertisements for the exorcist that boast about people fainting and, you know, they can't take it. And, of course, it's extremely good good boast. Um, but the research was done, and it finds that people who like horror movies are just as afraid as people who don't, except they like being afraid. The, the fear is pleasant. And I think there's different things going on here. But one thing is, and this is the only part of my book I get quite adaptationist. Um, for the most part, I think a lot of these, these sort of the, ap the pleasure we take from pain is kind of a biological accident and clever things we do. But here I get kind of adaptations. And I think we have a built-in desire to seek out worst case scenarios. Um, when we daydream, we have ultimate control over our thoughts, but we, we often go to, to bad stuff, think about unpleasant stuff. And we often seek these out. And the idea would be, it's actually very useful to think about bad things. You know, I could I could fantasize about myself winning a prize, but it doesn't winning a prize does not pose a problem. I say thank you and I'm happy. But so so I think it makes sense for me to spend more of my time on a sort of seemingly unpleasant activity of fantasizing what would happen if uh, if people I love die or lose my job, my house burns down, all my money goes away. Um or more more cosmically, um, the government collapses and there's no police anymore. And I think, for instance, I see a lot of zombie movies and zombie TV shows. And the one thing everybody agrees about these things is the danger is never from the zombies. I mean, the zombies are good for jump scares and set up the scene, but the danger is inevitably from people. And I think zombie films and zombie TV shows like The Walking Dead are just brilliant imaginary creations revolving around a the theme of what will you do when there's no police and there's no government? There's no running water, there's no electricity. So is that practice? As your book suggests, this, yes. this might be some practice for us. Yes. It's, it's in the same way that play fighting is a way to get good at fighting without the actual risk of a real fight. Imaginative engagement in worst case scenarios is a way to think about them and, and, and figure out, I mean, you know, if the aliens, it's not, in some way, if the aliens invade, if, 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 um, Canada, you know, reaches, comes anarchy, if the zombies attack, I'm kind of ready for them. I've thought this out already. Now, you know, to what extent that makes a difference is unclear, but there's, but there's this natural impulse to think about, the, about the bad. And I think yeah. it's kind of useful. There, there's some really nice stuff by a professor at NYU, um, Gabriella, Otanagan, I think, where she looks at people who have a lot of pleasant fantasies. They tend to daydream and try to imagine good things. And she finds that these people actually um, end up worse because of it. So she takes people looking for a romantic partner, divides them into those who never imagined to just try to get a romantic partner and those who spend a lot of time fantasizing and thinking about it. And the fantasizers are less likely to get one in the end. And she suggests it's because they don't try as hard because they satisfy their appetites 
in their imaginations. So what use does it serve, this urge to ruminate? I think uh, rumination is thinking about bad stuff. And I think thinking about bad stuff is useful in some way as a matter of practice, in some way as a matter of evaluating past events. So if I humiliated myself last week, it sure isn't pleasant for me to think about it. But it's actually pretty useful for me to think about it because I did something really wrong. And I best remember what I did so I don't do it again. Um, it'd be nice to have the power never to think about it again, but it's just, it just ups my odds of it happening again. You know, now, for, as for everything, there's, there's a right level, a sweet spot, you know, where, where um, if you ruminate too much, you could move into depression and things could be awful. And, but some degree of rumination and obsession about bad things and in general anxiety is good for us. It may not feel good at a certain level, but it's good for us. Would that suggest that maybe uh, things like obsessive compulsive disorder and anxiety disorders might stem from that 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 need, maybe that evolutionary need to to ruminate and, and that kind of thing, but it's just gone too too far? I think so. Um, I I think that for a lot of these things, there's uh, it's on a continuum. And you have to find the right spot in the continuum. And it's actually very difficult on, to, to find the right spot. And sometimes due to some combination of genetic propensity or bad environments, people find themselves in the wrong spot or continuum for their environment. But it's not as if there's a simple solution that we could be wired up to do. Um, there's an evolutionary uh, psychiatrist, uh, Nessie, who talks about anxiety. And he says, psychologists and psychiatrists are obsessed with people who have too much anxiety. Because they're the ones who go to clinics. They're the ones who seek medication. They're the ones who, uh, who, who are in a therapist's office. Um, but we never look at people who are too low anxiety. And those are perfectly happy people who end up in morgues and prison cells because they're fearless. And being fearless feels great until one day, you know, you, you, you walk into the wrong neighborhood or step in front of a speeding car or, or you know, punch back at the wrong guy. And so, so they both, too much anxiety is unpleasant and has its risk. Too little anxiety has its problems. We all make it through life trying to kind of end up at the right spot. And it's difficult and some people mess up. That reminds me of that psychopath again, because she used to, as a child, she would like jump on the top of cars as they were driving and things like that. And she got, she had all sorts of injuries and things. And yeah. she's, she's okay now and, and works as a lawyer. Um, so she's doing okay. Really? <laughs> yeah. There's a lawyer joke in there. Um, I know. I know. It's so funny that. You know, it's an analogy with people who, for some weird neurological disorders, don't feel pain. And you would imagine, well, that's great not to feel pain. But often they don't survive very long. They don't live to become adults because they injure themselves. They don't care for their injuries. They take too many chances. Intellectually, they know, you know, you shouldn't put your hand on the stove. But if it doesn't hurt, it doesn't have the same push. And I've often wondered about psychopaths. Maybe you have a sense of this, having talked to this person. There's all this stuff that, about successful psychopaths. The idea is that liberated from my conscience, I'm free to do all sorts of things, and I will make my way through the world so much better than anybody else. But the counter-argument is that being a psychopath in some ways sets you up for failure. Particularly being fearless sets up the problems you just mentioned. And not caring about other people in the end, it's difficult to hide. And people catch you out. And they think you're a jerk. And they don't want to associate with you. And there's arguments. There's these two arguments. One that says psychopaths are overrepresented at the top end of humanity. CEOs and presidents and prime ministers. And then the other, the other argument is no. They tend to be losers. They tend to be, you know, in prison way off more often than they should be. Or, you know, just... just you know, not not very successful at life. Well, I, yeah, I had a a philosopher called Julian Bagini who was on here a few weeks ago. I know his work. He, yeah. He, oh, he's great, and he was saying um, that those kinds of statistics, like he was talking about how statistics can be used to exaggerate claims, and the idea. I think um, psychopaths make up something like one percent of of the society, and it's something like two or three percent of CEOs. So the vast majority of CEOs are still not yeah. in any way psychopathic. Yeah. With with regards to what you were saying about them being winners or losers, or if people work them out, because I also spoke to Dr. James Fallon, who's the uh, neuroscientist who who uh, investigated and studied psychopaths his whole life, and then realised he was one when looking at a brain scan. 
Um, and the issue with these people is they ha- with interviewing them is that they have a heightened sense of self worth. So it's very hard yeah. to to say to them, you know, so it, do people catch you out? Does anyone not like you? And they're just sort of, no, I'm fantastic at it. I'm extremely good looking. I'm extremely wonderful, and people seem to really like me. So it's very hard to get an objective view of um, <laughs> their their experience and their social lives and things. I mean, also, if, if you take the continuum view. Um, you and I say things like such and so percentage of people are psychopaths and, and, you know, it's reasonable enough to say it. Like we might say so and so percentage of the population has a depressive disorder or an anxiety disorder or are narcissists. But this is all fine as long as we keep in mind these numbers are just arbitrary slices at, at, at on a continuum. You know, um, the, there is a scale, for instance, the psychopath test, uh, Designed John by a Canadian, yeah, yeah. So designed by I think Robert Hare originally. Yes, and uh, and John Ronson talks about this in his book. And if you score past a certain number, you know, being you're a psychopath. But of course, the number is arbitrary. The number of questions you have to get wrong could be lower, could be higher. Um, when you look for psychopaths in the university population, where people are relatively well behaved, people often put the number lower so as to get more. If you're in a maximum security prison, you put the number higher, and this is all perfectly fine as long as we realize, as long as we don't fall into the trap of saying, well, there's a special kind of person walking among us, the psychopath. You know, ooh, scary. Rather, there's a continuum of how much of a jerk you are and how insensitive and how sensation-seeking you are. And psychopaths are just on one end of the scale, the people we call them that. I went around after reading that book um and it was that was a point by the way. In in your book, there's a lot of references to British things. And I thought, oh, he knows about a lot of, of British things. Is, is there an affinity for British stuff? There is. Know? I didn't know it was in her though. And do you remember any examples? You mentioned publicly shamed. Oh yes, yes. Well, I'm a I'm a big John Ronson fan. Um yeah. uh, he's great. He um he actually he actually came to my uh teaching at Yale in intro psych class and, and he was kind enough to come and lecture on a psychopath word to the class, which was wonderful. Except he used a common British word that has a particularly intense and obscene meaning in America and um and not as much in the UK. The C word. This it was the C word. It was the C he word. He used which, that which, in a speech in a talk in a university. He only used it 400 to 500 times. Um, basically, in any time where a normal person would put in a pronoun or say the word person, it was very funny. It was very funny. And he didn't, but it's quite, it's, it's, it has a different connotation yeah. in the States. And I got a complaint or two, uh, justifiably. But, um, oh. anyway, he's a, I love his book, The Psychopath Test. I, I <laughs> That's thought it's so funny. He did that. I love that story. I just went to see, um, have you heard of a comedian called David Baddiel? No, I don't think I have. British, uh, comedian. I went to see, he did a whole bit, uh, where he just said that word about a hundred times. But as you say, in, in Britain, it's not, um, at least among younger generations, it's not, it's not as, it, it doesn't have the same connotations. But as you know, in Britain, it's sort of an affectionate term for person, like, you know. Yes. Yeah, it's somewhere. It's between the two. It's between because some people will say that, and it's not quite. We say that to Americans. It's not quite right because I wouldn't say it in front of my mum. She gets very upset. Yes, and I I will often joke because my my uh, girlfriend is Argentine, so she has a slight accent, and she can't quite she can't she can't quite (laughs) hear the difference between can't and that word. (laughs) Got it. Um, So when she says can't, I always go. in front of my mum yes. to, to get her in trouble. Yes, yes. And then, then yes. Um, <laughs> to answer your question, by the way, I, I, I spent a year in London on sabbatical many years ago. Mm. And, and I loved it. It was my homeland. Like, I just, uh, yeah, oh. I, I love the food and I love the bars oh. and, and the pub life. And, um, and I don't know, if, if, if I wasn't living in Toronto, uh, London or would probably be in a very, very shortlist place I'd like to live, spend my whole life at. It's not often you hear people say they like the food. And I think I'm going to guess that because you mentioned, along with hot baths, you mentioned spicy food a lot. It must be the spicy. There's a lot of spicy stuff. Although you get that in the States as well. You get that in the, sta- in, in the States. But but Indian food and, and, and other food is just amazing, amazing in London. And also, uh, I don't know, maybe I have an unsophisticated palate. But, you know, for me, you know fish and chips and all of that stuff is just you know some some beer and then fish and chips and some crisps and everything it's just just paradise uh i love all that stuff so yeah so it so it's it's um it it just it appeals to me it's not as you find a place that just clicks with your nature and 
and uh, and also a lot of my favorite writers are are from the UK. Um, you know, so Ian McEwen and uh, Zadie Smith and Martin Amos and this that. That's that right. You mentioned McEwen in the book. That's that's right. It was another one where I thought, oh, he likes English stuff. Yes, yes. <laughs> I can't remember what I was going to ask about the the English. The, I was going to ask something about that, and I don't remember what it was now. Is it, was it, we're going to go back to masochism, the the famous might have been, English might have been pension about, for whips. <laughs> could have been that. I'm not even sure. Oh, there was that famous. There was a famous example. It was that, um, was it Mosley? Oswald Mosley's son. What's his name? I'm just looking it up. Mosley's son. Uh, it might not have been Mosley. Maybe it was a... There was a guy. I think it was Max Mosley, right? He's the son of a of a fascist. Yes. And he was... There were photos of him that appeared in yes. The Sun. Oh, yes. And with the... Oh, because it was probably in a John Ronson book, this, wasn't it? It was in and his book, So You've Been shamed. Probably Shamed. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so that was an example. So he obviously liked the BDSM, and then he got off, he, he sued them because it wasn't, the son reported he was with Nazi yes. people. <laughs> and he said, strictly, and he sued them, he said, strictly, this is, this is great one, so strictly speaking, it wasn't Nazis. It was just, you know, regular German soldiers' uniforms, and he sued them successfully. Yeah, like they didn't, because <laughs> as soon as they got sued, they must have looked at those photos and zoomed in and gone, oh my God, please find a swastika. Like, please find one somewhere, and there, there wasn't one. Know your fetish. Yeah. <laughs> hey, tell me about, your, I was just amazed by this, your son's science project relating to Everest. Oh, yeah. This was a final project he had in his school. And it, the kids had to take some sort of um, difficult final project, start it, do it for the whole year. And his, and he, my, my younger son is a climber. He's a boulder mostly, but he loves climbing. And uh, he decided to climb Everest. So I don't remember the numbers right now, but he, he, he knew how, how high Everest was. He, um, you know, we're in New Haven, Connecticut. We're not going to go anywhere. He has to go to school, but he went to the climbing gym and each, uh, each day he would climb for hours as if he was on Everest recording where he would be if he was on Everest and what he would be seeing and what he would be doing. And he kind of put this together in a, in a blog. And, and, you know, I use this as a sort of starting example of, um, of, this was in some way miserable. It was difficult, physically demanding, kind of boring, just doing repetitive stuff. Um, and, and, um, and he hated it at some level, got sick of it. But at another level, he loved it. He saw his progress. It was in some way just a great example of a meaningful project. You know, of course, really climbing Everest is the perfect example. This was kind of like it was a, it was a meaningful project that had difficulty. It had some degree of significance. It brought him in touch with people. Maybe it had a spiritual element. And one of the things I argue in my book is it's not quite true that for many of our meaningful projects, we're seeking out suffering. You know, um, my son did not want to be, you know, have muscle aches and, and long periods of boredom. Just like training for a marathon, you don't want to get blisters. But if you didn't have suffering or anxiety or difficulty, it wouldn't be meaningful to you. It wouldn't count. And so in this way, suffering in all of its forms becomes an integral part of um, of a sort of project we want to do. I think what he did was even more remarkable in some ways than climbing Everest. Because Everest, obviously, you have the conditions and, and all of yes. that. But you get the views and you get all that stuff. And what he did, it was, it was so, I suppose it must have been so boring to do that that was another level of suffering, just the, the boredom and not having the views and, and not the same acclaim maybe that you'd get from, you know, I climbed Everest. But he, I'm just amazed that he did that. That's right. So, so. I, I talk later in the book about this paper by George Lowenstein, an economist, about why people do mountain climbing. And there's different explanations. And the one I like is because it's a meaningful goal and involves suffering. And everything. But another one, honestly, is, is signaling. You know, you, 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 um, you know, we're having a conversation. I said, oh, have I mentioned to you when I climbed Everest? And that's impressive. It's, it's, it, it, it's, it's kind of cool. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you don't, you don't get that in the gym. So in some ways, it's, it's a pure example than the kind of person who will dine out for the rest of their lives on having climbed Everest. Were you proud? Yeah, I'm always proud of him. But I, but he's a he's a, it's funny because as a kid he's like so he's fun he's smart he's funny but he but when he was younger he he kind of never got into anything and then he got into rock climbing and then that sort of steeled his um got his sort of 
it's a horrible metaphor, I know, but I still think it's true, of the muscle of willpower. And it got stronger. And now he can kind of do whatever he sets his mind to. And now he's studying um, philosophy in Vancouver, where there's, oh. also great, great, where there's also great mountains. Yeah, he sounds great. And I think it just brings me back to that almost political point I was making before, just about, and I guess it, his, was, his was willful suffering. Mm-hmm. But there has to be some level of suffering that you get from the outside and obviously not being attacked or anything, but some to sort of build up. I guess what I'm worried about, I've got a family friend who's a uh, 14-year-old girl and she's suffering a lot with mental health stuff now. But then her friends, like all of her friends are on antidepressants or like quite a few of them. And there's a bit, lot of like, you have to talk about mental health. And I don't mean for a second to suggest in a very sort of conservative way that she's not suffering because I believe I believe she is and it's it's really difficult. But and I remember being an adolescent, it was it's horrible. It's really hard sometimes. Um but this sort of reaching for antidepressants, I feel like I'm worried it will blunt this person's uh personality and ability to to deal with suffering later in life. Do you do you know what I mean? I do know what you mean. Um I know the spirit of what you mean. I think as sort of as a matter of empirical fact, the sort of antidepressants that people take or the anti-anxiety drugs just make things better. And and they don't, they, you, you have this honest risk that they'll obliterate all feelings of sadness, but they don't work like that. They just kind of put people in more of an even keel. Um, but, but there's something to what you say more generally. Um, there's some research. I'm, I'm skeptical about toxic post-traumatic growth. And, and, you know, how what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. But there is some evidence for this. Um, there's, a few, there's a series of studies where what they do is they give people a scale of like, I forget, 35 items of bad things that could happen in your life. You know, you're assaulted, you're somebody you love dies and so on. And it's such a sad scale. And there's some people who actually tick off most everything on the scale. But there's some people who tick off nothing. Just nothing. No, none of that happened to me. I'm unscathed. It turns out that those people who take off nothing have lower pain tolerance, a higher tendency to catastrophize, and are actually, in other research, less kind, less willing to donate to others, less kind. So, so the, the original data on pain tolerance shows sort of an upside down U. So, the people who um, have no suffering have low pain tolerance. The people who have had nothing but suffering also have low pain tolerance. It's the people in the middle who do best. Hmm, that's really interesting. It corresponds a little bit with another person you mentioned in the book, which is Jordan Peterson, and he yeah. gets frustrated. And I think that's why I ask, I ask professors the question about how it is to be around students a lot. Um, and he obviously found it very frustrating. And he always said, you haven't, he says, four years ago, you were a 14-year-old child. Like you don't, you don't haven't experienced anything yet. And I guess there has to be a little bit of that. I, I don't know. You know, I've been around students for a long time. And what strikes me is this, I don't just, I'll just say this doesn't bear on anything, but, but I get out of my office hours and students walk in and you have some students, they're the same age and a kid could walk in and it's like, he's been dressed by his mom and, and, you know, he calls me sir for squeaky voice. And, and it's clear he's just a student. He's just like a kid. He's like a, a kid trying to make his way through this new place and everything. And then the next person who walks in and I don't know, she's, she ran a business before coming and she's, and she, she, she writes books and has this incredible social life. And, and at the age of 17 to 21, there's such an enormous range of humanity where some people are still children and others are very much adults. It's a spectrum. I've got to turn the heating on. I'm so cold. That's another, that's a, that's another British cliche. What? <laughs> this, that it's, we're cold. It's, it's cold in the winter and no air conditioning in the summer. Is that still an active cliche? It's, it's absolutely true that we don't have air conditioning um, in the summer. So our summers are awful and we're miserable. And it's not that hot, but it's just like if you don't have any air conditioning, yeah. it will be hot some days. That's the whole of Europe. I went to Rome a few months ago, first time ever in, in Rome. And I, I had the worst time ever. It was my worst. It was too much suffering. And obviously now I, I look like the spoiled, <laughs> you know, the, the student I'm trying to portray in my mind that may or may not exist. That, that was actually me uh, being this guy who just was, you know, 
my girlfriend just wanted to go to the Colosseum and all this stuff and I was walking around just like like sitting on the floor and like refusing to move because I was too hot but <laughs> just, you, European- just, cry, just crying wanting to get picked up <laughs> Yeah, that was it. I went and sat down in the gift shop of the Coliseum. And I said, look, can you just go and have a look around the Coliseum? I had no interest in it. I've never been less interested in anything because all I could think of was I'm too hot and I'm dizzy. And I went and sat in a gift shop on the floor and these Italian guys were coming over like, you were right. And I was like, I'm, I'm fine, but I'm just sitting here and I'm not going to look at any more attractions for the rest of my holiday because I'm too miserable and hot. But uh, yeah, what, what would what would Jordan Peterson think? <laughs> he would think that I um I need to sort out my get my bed uh, made first, get your bed made, and uh, yeah, then go to like Rome. That. Something like that. Yes, yes. <laughs> you, you know, get your. <laughs> That's what he'd say. Yes, and, and for any Jordan Peterson fans listening, I, I like him very much, and I have nothing because you have to say that because I I don't think there are any more hot button things. If you make fun of Jordan Peterson, and I've experienced that before, only even in a jokey way, you can get a lot of angry emails from people. So I, you know, it's funny. I'm in the same university as him now. He's a oh, um, he's a emeritus professor, and huh. I've I, I disagree with him on some things. I think he's made some missteps and disagree with him or something, but I think there's also some real insight in his work. I think he'd appreciate that that analysis because, and I think he does. And I've seen him share reviews of his books that say eh, some of it no, some of it yes, and yeah. yet his some of his followers are so fervent, and they really because I had somebody on here who's a feminist who he had a big debate with Helen Lewis. They had this big uh, GQ debate, and I thought it was a okay. really great debate. It was one of those where yeah. she was. She was his, I shouldn't say this again because I'm going to get killed. I thought she was his uh, equal in that debate and it was fascinating. And that is the video on YouTube that has had the the most negative by a long, long way. Like Most of them are like 97% plus, you know, likes. And this was like 3% likes. The rest were all down votes. People were so upset that I'd had this person on who really? debated him. Yeah. 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 It's And of course, it's ironic because... Um, I think the sort of person who, um, who who is drawn to someone like Jordan Peterson appreciates one of Jordan Peterson's in some way best features of being iconoclastic and, and the ability to say things that many people would find forbidden and everything. And the idea that such a person would themselves be so so into thought policing and say, how <laughs> dare you communicate with somebody who has views that, at least by my standards, are so out of the, so extreme and, you know. Um, yeah. But yeah, sometimes sometimes the followers of a public figure are far more di- dogmatic uh, than the figure uh, him or herself. You see this. You see this both on the left and on the right. Oh yeah, absolutely. And that that was the thing. And I kept having to reply. At first, I replied to all the angry comments, and I was saying, "But I like the guy as well. I think he's good as well." But just some. I think he he's overly grumpy, and I think that's a. I think that's a valid criticism. He looks grumpy. Why can't I make that criticism? Uh, he looks like a grumpy guy, and I'd rather I prefer people to be less grumpy. But a lot of the stuff he says is very interesting. Yeah, too much grumpiness. Too much grumpiness. Well, it's mm. it's maybe it's a bit Canadian. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, we're really this is the ethnic because the ethnic stereotype uh, discussion. Canadian, yeah, you guys in Canada, Canadians are much happier than than Brits though, and Germans and the French. I think. Yes, yes, maybe. I think so. I think so. We should go eat through each um, each nationality and list their best traits and their worst traits. It is an interesting thing, though, because one part of your book, it talks about the happiness levels, right? And there are always mm-hmm. these different kinds of statistics about how happy one country is and one is not. And inevitably, Britain and the US are sort of quite low down, and that's seen as a sign yeah. of things are not as good here. And, that. Yeah. and I always wonder as well how much it's to do with sort of a bit of nationalism. And I think... I don't know. I used to live in in Medellin in Colombia. Lived there for mm-hmm. um, a year or so, and all they told me was how happy they were all the time and and how wonderful. And I felt like maybe they felt like they had to prove something. Uh, maybe I don't know. Yeah. And, and a British, but you ask a British person if they're happy, they could have just won the lottery. I don't think it's not said. It's not the done thing to say. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that that's. I think that that's right. I I I think happiness research and these cross country comparisons are really important and tell us a lot. I mean, for one thing, U.S. and Britain do do badly, but they don't do badly uh, in, for countries as a whole. They're pretty high up, but they punch below their weight for the GDP, for the prosperity, for the government. They should be much higher, and they aren't. And there may be sort of cultural reasons 
why not? Um, I think that if you say this country is seven and this country is 7.2, drawing conclusion with that is just ridiculous. There's so many things that could turn, including how people like to answer the questions. On the other hand, um, one reason why I take those levels seriously is that they correlate with things that make sense, like how wealthy a country is, how safe it is, this, you know, whether or not how much trust people have in one another. But you're totally right that, that people not only have different levels of happiness and sadness, they also have different, uh, you know, ways of perceiving their own happiness and sadness. And this could lead them to, to, there could be a culture where you're never supposed to say you're happy, not even an anonymous survey. And it could be also be a culture where you're sort of supposed to put on a good face. What about um, music? What kind of music do you, I mean, you mentioned Adagio for Strings and, and uh, Mozart's Requiem, right? And it was so interesting you put that because I don't listen to much classical music really at all. Um, and those two, since I was a teenager, Adagio for Strings and Requiem were the two pieces that most affected me and I most enjoyed listening to. They're famously sad. They're famously uh, sad music. Um, the other example is Adele. I think uh, someone like you is a, a famously, you know, and, and I can listen to that and sort of get into it. And, and I'm interested in the pleasure we get from, from sadness. And you think about it in terms of tragedies, uh, but you also can think of it in terms of music. Some music sort of, sort of feels like, um, I was talking to Susan Cain recently, who's writing a book called Bittersweet. And some music's bittersweet. Some music evokes a certain feeling in you that um, is not positive, but you could take some some satisfaction dwelling on it. You know, there's 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 this idea called emo diversity. I think Michael Norton came up with it, which is you don't just want to be happy. You sometimes want to experience a whole range of different emotions, and music is a wonderful way to get you there. You know. Um, you want one sort of emotion, you know, you put on, on ABBA, you know, you put, you want another sort of emotion you put on, you put on Adele or you want another, you put on Metallica and, and you could use these as ways to get you in a certain headspace. And it's that you might want different headspaces for different times. I found it really, really interesting. And, and partly because I've always gravitated so much towards sad stuff to the point that, you know, my stepmother would always make fun of me, you know, oh, Radiohead again. Oh God, this is real. <laughs> sad depressing music I thought, yeah, nirvana why is it <laughs> yeah. yeah nirvana as well all those bands you know but radiohead more than anything else because they just they're so sad it's <laughs> so sad so much of it and i sit there and i just i always said like but it makes me happy why i'm not sure it makes you happy but you like it you get something out of it and mm. i mean one answer is you may just want to f- experience sadness and people think this is crazy but but think about it um, Halloween has just passed. People like to be scared. Yeah. People want to experience fear. Um, sometimes people like to feel angry. You're just angry. And, you know, it, it, and so sadness, sulking, is, uh, you know, an underappreciated pleasure. Mm. One of the arguments I make in my book, and this, this is based on some work by Lisa Feldman Barrett, who's a neuroscientist and some other people, is that it, it's too simple to say some emotions are good, some emotions are bad emotions can get your badness or goodness depending on your construal. So, so fear is a good example. Fear is normally bad. You know, if you're terrified, it's normally bad. But it's normally bad not because fear is bad, but because the conditions that typically evoke fear are bad. So you're being chased by a rabid dog and you're terrified and it's just awful. But it's not the fear that makes it awful. Rather, it's the idea that the dog will maul you. So if you go to a haunted house and you feel fear from being shocked or surprised because of the mood, that could be fun if you believe you're in no actual danger. And, you know, I woke up this morning and kind of in a kind of mildly crap mood for some mild reasons. Mm. And I realized as I was having, I was just savoring it. I could have done a few things to get me out of the mood. You know, I could have, you know, spoken to my partner or, you know, Read some, read some stuff I know what I, what I was looking forward to reading. And I stayed in it. I just stayed in my sulk for a while, feeling sorry for myself. But at the same time thinking, yeah, yeah, poor me. <laughs> it's a nice thing. That's, that's an interesting one. And that just reminded me, actually, of, uh, I don't know if you ever watched Louis C.K.'s sitcom, Louis. Yes, I have. We're really, we're really going there, aren't we? But, um, yeah. but yes, I, 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 think, I think Louis' sitcom was uh, in Time's Genius. 
oh, it really was. It was one of the best things I've, I've ever ever watched and there was a moment in it that you've just reminded me of where he's heartbroken and he's got this horrible cranky neighbor who's uh, quite old i guess he's in his 80s or something and he and the guy says well what's wrong with you and, and louis says oh i'm heartbroken and the guy says do you know how lucky you are to be heartbroken do you know what i would give to feel heartbroken oh. to have that and i just it really touched me that yeah that's a beautiful that's a beautiful sentiment i mean yeah you're talking about grief, and grief, of course, is terrible. You know, nobody nobody wishes for it. Um, but, but um, well, this goes back to your depressive point. Somebody, somebody I'm very close to, uh, an older man, lost his partner, and people were worried about him because he was quite depressed. And reached out to him and said, you know, maybe you should see somebody, maybe go on something. And he said, uh, no, if it lasts too long, I will. But what I'm feeling now is appropriate. And there's this line that Zadie Smith quotes from a condolence letter. It, it, it hurts just as much as it's worth. And sometimes pain, grief is an acknowledgement of something's value. If somebody you love dies, you shouldn't be happy the next day because your grief is an honest reflection of the value they have for you. It would be disrespectful. It would reflect an indifference. And sometimes even terrible emotions that give us no pleasure, no joy, have a lot to be said for them. An even worse or, or an equally bad feeling as grief is when you don't feel like you feel it as much as you should. Yes. And again, I, I, I keep referencing pop culture, but there was a movie called A Monster Calls, which I just found so beautiful. And it was about a, a boy who loses his mother. Um, and it was about him dealing with the fact that he wanted her, at least at the end, to end her suffering because she was ill to die and that guilt you have and i suppose yeah. i suppose that's because it's you felt like it should be worth more grief yeah 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 an inability to feel pain as you know um could be so dispiriting because it reflects a, a a lack in in value can you imagine the shock you would feel if somebody you love died and you weren't actually weren't that bothered by it what that would say about yourself yeah, but it must happen a lot. It's interesting. Um, you hear people describe themselves being surprised by the intensity of their grief. But you're right, there must be people who are surprised that it wasn't so intense, that their their partner of 20 years dies and a month later they're dating. I, sp I went that, that whole way through that John Ronson, uh, the psychopath, just because you know he says, um, if you're worried you're a psychopath, then you're not you're a not psychopath. One. But I went the whole way through it just thinking, yeah, but I think I might be the one that is. And that's very worrying for me. I'm the one exception to that rule. And I'm worried I'm a psychopath. So so much anxiety and stress and worrying about it. <laughs> so I would definitely, I think I would be so overwhelmed if somebody close to me died. I'd be so overwhelmed with this um, pressure to feel grief that it would actually yeah. maybe prevent me from feeling grief. But I, yeah, I'll wait till that happens. It's similar to the Mount Everest case where there's definitely signaling in it. You know, um, I remember I was, I was very young when my mother died and, and I felt, you know, you feel what you feel, but I also felt that everyone was looking at me expecting certain, a certain thing and were, were satisfied when they saw it. And that is weird. Grieving in public is such a, is such a difficult thing because you want to, you want to, you want to have your, you have your actual feelings and then you have what's expected from you and you, and we never escape wanting to make a good impression and give people what they want. When they didn't get what they want, that was Amanda Knox, and she was put in prison for a few years. Yes, she didn't show the proper grief, and then they figured that she was a murderer. Is that... Yeah. You know, I was... Okay, well, enough time has gone by I could tell this, but um, uh, when I was at Yale, there had something called Executive Committee, which is a punishment committee. I was on this <laughs> committee as a professor, and um, there's just three of us. And I was a professor at administrators and students would come in and they will have had done some infraction. And often it's a very minor infraction, like public urination because they're drunk. Sometimes it's plagiarism. Sometimes it's violence towards another student. And sometimes these students would cry for serious things. And the other people on my group were so moved by it and then so upset at his absence like there would be somebody and I would say, well, this wasn't that severe. The guy seems to have learned his lesson. We don't want to have much severe punishment. And then he'd say, he didn't seem that upset. And I would say, maybe he didn't want to cry for us. Maybe, maybe it's a yeah. matter of self-respect and, 
And yeah, people, but people get angry when you don't give them what they want. I want to get on to uh, this perfect life simulation because I just, I, I really loved uh, that. Can you tell me about that? So this was by the philosopher uh, Robert Nozick and he called it the experience machine. And, you know, he wrote this before The Matrix, but The Matrix, whatever he thinks about nowadays, which is, it's very simple. You, you get an offer. An offer is you, you lie down on a table and I'll plug you into a machine and you will live the rest of your life on a table, living as long as you would have otherwise lived. And through the machine, you will experience the feeling of living the best life ever. You know, a life of adventure and love and attachment if you think a life involves some ups and downs, you'll have some ups and downs, but it'll be an incredible life. Um, and of course, you won't know you're strapped in a machine. Your memory of that is immediately wiped out. And the question is, will you do it? And it's basically a question about hedonism. If all you value is pleasure, then it's an obvious yes. But some people say no, including Nozick and including me. Where um, an idea is that, well, I don't want to just... Um, think I've had loving relationships. I want to have loving relationships. I don't want to think I climbed Mount Everest. I want to climb Mount Everest and so on and so forth. To be, a, be in that machine for the rest of your life, just be an insane blob. And who wants to be a blob? It's horrible. I could imagine saying yes if I was in a prison or something. My life's really sucked. But as long as you have some semblance of a valuable life, you want to be in the world. You don't want to just be in the machine. But having said that, there are two twists. First, I've asked a lot of people, including, you know, students at university who are, most of them are relatively privileged and happy. And a lot of them say, plug me in, man. I'll just, I'll just hit it, you know, and I don't care if I don't make a difference. And then the second thing is there's a philosopher, Felipe de Brigard, who pointers a problem with the example, which is there's a little bit of a status quo bias. So he has the flipped version. The flipped version goes like this. So the status quo bias is right now, you're living your life and I'm asking you, do you want to change? And live a life of, in the machine. The flip version is you're talking to me and all of a sudden you blip out and you're sitting at a table and some administrator says to you, um, well, you've been in the machine for the last uh, three years. I'm, I know you've been living a really good life in the machine. It's all been, you've just been lying here. It's all a dream. Do you want to go back? We'll wipe out your, this is, we, we check in every three years. Do you want to go back or do you want to now live your real life? Now, if it was me, it's hard because it's sad to think that my sons and my partner and my career are all illusions, but man, I love those illusions and I probably want to go back to them. So that's the experience machine. Doesn't it depend? Because when you come out of the machine, you would then have the memories of your outside yes. life and you might think, my word, I should wake my wife up <laughs> or something. But when they put you back, they wipe that memory, of course. You never realize about that time out and I'd be back living my life. And of course... There's no you, there's no nothing. I'm just in my head. Hmm. I think a big part of why I wouldn't want to go into the machine is sort of obligations and stuff, you know? It would be like, oh, I couldn't yes. leave my mum. I'm talking about the first example of going yes. into the machine. Yes. Uh, my mum on her own or my dad or my uh, girlfriend and what they're just, I'm just saying, screw you guys. I'm just going to live my life in this thing. It's that obligation. And I like the status quo point as, as well. Like, oh, now I don't know what I'd do. But your obligation, it, it makes a good point. I talk about it in terms of meaning, and so does Nozick, but there's also morality. So the person trying to persuade you to go in the machine says, don't worry, once you're in the machine, you'll be imagining having the most wonderful time with your mom. You'll never remember what you've done to her. But you're thinking, yeah, but I will have abandoned her. Mm. And, and this choice, I won't remember having abandoned her, but nonetheless, I will have abandoned her. And, and then you say, no, I don't want to do that. And again, to the extent people say what you're saying, it suggests we're not entirely motivated by pleasure. We have other appetites. Except, I'm just trying to think out loud here, the, the guilt about leaving my mum in this, and I should change it for my mum because she won't like me talking about it, by, who shall I say? Leaving my friend. Yeah. I'll do my mum. That's ridiculous. Right. The, the guilt you've about already, you've already, my Your mum's already in on this, this She's example. in the podcast. <laughs> she, the guilt of leaving my mum is influencing the decision in the moment in yes. real life. So yes. I'm not getting pleasure in that moment. I'm feeling really yes. bad. Yes. But, but the hedonism, the person would say, it feels bad. Yes, this is bad. When you do the choice, you're going to feel bad for the two minutes it takes for us to hook you into the machine. 
Do you realize how much pleasure you're going to get for the next 60 years? It's This is nothing from a hedonic trade-off. A little bit of feeling bad, two minutes, one minute. We'll click on quick. One minute, you feel bad for your mom. Okay, it's lying down in a machine, feeling bad, sorry, feeling bad. Boom, paradise. And so if you're sensibly doing the math, a couple of minutes feeling really bad, you're leading down your family, leading down people you love. That's kind of awful. Versus years and years of unbridled pleasure, hedonic pleasure, satisfaction, meaning all illusions, but... And that suggests that 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 your moral qualms aren't just plugged in as negative feelings. They're honestly ultimately override the considerations of pleasure. Mm. It reminds me a little bit of um, just just people who continue in unhappy marriages because they don't want to have the week or the, even the hour, the conversation, because it's such a miserable conversation, even though they know they could be much happier for decades to come. Oh, that's a really good example. And that's another example. It's, it's true. And maybe this is a nice response to me saying that it's not sort of calculations. It's true, um, you know, we're, we're, we're here and we can get up here. But in order to that, you have to have a brief period down here. And, you know, there's a million examples of this. People who suffer from serious dental pain for an enormous amount of time because they don't want to go to the dentist. Go to the dentist. It's going to be worse. You know, no matter what they do, it's going to be worse. But then you'll be done with it. And it's it's very difficult sometimes to do that to be farsighted, get over our time biases. Yeah, well, my, I've got that because I got a, a my nose gets really stuffed all the time, and I can have an operation that will sort of straighten the inside of it. Yeah, um, and I'm scared out of my mind the idea of like people going up when I'm asleep, they're going up inside my nose and doing things. So I'm just uh, addicted now to this like uh, nose spray stuff I use. I've got it with me all the time because um, I don't um, want to go through that like week of horribleness, you know? Yeah, yeah. And of course, once you do, you'll be done. You say, why didn't I get this done years earlier? <laughs> yeah, yeah. If I ever do it, if I ever do it. If you do it. <laughs> Thanks for listening to that episode of On the Edge with Andrew Gold, Professor Paul Bloom. Wow. I wasn't just thanking Professor Paul Bloom for listening. I I sort of was saying thanks for listening to all of you. And then I was saying his name because he was in it. And then I said, wow. Um, That was really interesting was what I was going to say next. And might just explain why so many of you listeners are sadomasochists in that you make yourself suffer by continuing to listen to this horrible podcast. Just kidding, of course. I'm delighted you do. And please do check out the half hour bonus part with Professor Bloom or Paul. I never know how to address academic guests on the podcast in the third person. Um, You know, there's a lot of talk about pronouns and things. And without being glib, I do think it's about time that we discuss whether we can call professors by their first names on podcasts or whatever it might be. I'm going to go with Paul, I think. He, He won't mind that. Anyway. It's on Apple. I'm talking about that bonus episode. It's on Apple, my YouTube memberships as well. You can get it there, the video version, and also on patreon.com slash Gold. It's a really good one. So even if you sign up for just one month or one day or cancel whatever, just give that one a listen. You'll get full ad-free episodes there too. I hope the ads weren't too overwhelming for non-members this week. I'm just weighing up how to actually live from this podcast because I love making it so much. Remember, you'll find Paul's book, The Sweet Spot, in the show notes, along with his Twitter bio. So do give him a look. He's, give him a look? Give him a look, a look up? Give him a, I was going to say give him a follow, but then I was going to say he's a fantastic person to follow. Um, give him, just just find him. You'll, you'll, he'll like that. Thanks to those of you who signed up this week. I can't see your names on Apple. Uh, I'm talking about the memberships again, of course. But on Patreon, thanks to Hallie B., and Samuel LP, who I've enjoyed chatting to in the YouTube comments of late. Really appreciate your help. I look forward to continuing to chat with you on Patreon. Please keep reviewing everyone. I can't stress how important that is. Well, I can. I'm stressing it. That's how important it is. And I don't even know if it is. I think it is. I think it boosts the podcast in the charts on Apple and CastBox or something like that. Uh, There was one this week from Grace J97. I don't know if Grace is 97 or was born in 97, which would make her, what, 24, which is younger than I thought 
people listening to this if you're very i well and actually no that's a that's a minefield i'm not doing that i just want i was wondering who might be the youngest people who are interested i imagine everyone listening's my age which is 32 or upwards although 97 if she is 97 again get in touch if you're in your 90s and you listen regularly i'd, I'd like to hear from you um it might just be that grace likes the numbers nine and seven but she gave a five for the rating out of five stars. She's in the UK. This was on Apple. Such a great and interesting podcast. I love listening to Andrew and the guests and topics he has on. Andrew has such a calming voice, but still manages to keep me engaged throughout. Plus, he asks his guests all the right questions. That's a lovely review. Thank you very much, Grace. And, you know, happy 98th birthday or, or 24th when that birthday does come around. That's all for this week, but please do keep getting in touch, spreading the word and all that stuff. Uh, you'll find the video version to this, of course. Um, I've got all these posh lights behind me now that you might want to see. I've got quite a nice camera. It's looking snazzy. Uh, YouTube.com slash AndrewGold1. Next week is either the man who had to live in an airport, like the Tom Hanks film, or Kelly Thiel on breaking out of the NXI, I think it's I, NXIVM cult. You'll hear all about that next week.